And uh, the author, uh, Matthew Barrett, quoted a study done by LifeWay, and it revealed that 41% of Americans believe that the Son of God existed before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And that's not terribly great. That means 59% don't believe that. But what's especially disconcerting is the realization that there are approximately 63% of the people in our country who would identify themselves as Christians. And so when you do the math, 63 divided by 41 and all the rest, it comes out to 35% of self-described Christians in our country do not believe the Son of God existed before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That is to say, greater than one-third of all people who understand themselves to be Christians doubt or doubt severely the full deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, there is a word for this, and, and please don't run out of here when I say the word. It's well, Nobody's looking to burn anybody at the stake, but there is a word for that. It's called heresy. Uh, let me define Christian heresy for you, okay? Christian heresy is, it happens when you have a thought that is so contradictory or a, hold a belief so contradictory to Christianity that you literally, definitionally, just can't hold to Christianity and that belief at the same time. Let me give you a simple example of this. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? How many of you would say, I could be a Christian and disbelieve in the existence of God? Nobody. If you don't believe in the existence of God, you can't be a Christian. How many of you say, I, I, I believe in Christianity, I am a Christian, and I also deny that there are sins and the forgiveness of sins? You can't do that. Those are mutually exclusive beliefs. You can't hold to Christianity and to that particular belief at the same time. If you do say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in God or I don't believe in the forgiveness of sins, well, you're not a Christian. Okay? You're somebody else. You're something else. And that's okay. Just real quick, it, it's okay. You can believe whatever you want to believe, and you can express that belief. It, you're free as an American to do that. I think that's fantastic. Uh, and I would disagree with your belief, but I am a First Amendment person all the way. I believe in the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom to assemble, and freedom to push back, uh, at least, you know, in writing or verbally against the government if you feel like there's overreach or corruption. I'm, I'm a First Amendment person. In fact, I would say that if you are a part of cancel culture, not only does that threaten America, but that's fundamentally un-American. I mean, I, I am all about the First Amendment. You can believe what you want to believe. You can be who you want to be. It's just that when it comes to Christianity, definitionally, there are certain things that you just cannot believe and be a Christian. You cannot say, I'm a Christian, and I don't believe in the existence of God. You can't say, I'm a Christian, and I don't believe in the forgiveness of sins. And you can't be a Christian and say, I don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Those things do not, cannot go together. And this is not a peripheral thing, okay? There are things on the periphery like, okay... Complementarian versus egalitarian with, you know, women in the household, or we could debate about, you know, spiritual gifts, or people can talk about different views of the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Those are intramural discussions and debates. When it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus, you have to be in 
or you're out. It, it's that simple. And this is not just a Baptist thing. You can go back way, way back to the early church. There was this council. Church leaders got together. Athanasius, Council of uh, Nicaea, 325 A.D. And these late leaders got together, and they all basically agreed, look, if only God can save people who cannot save themselves, and if Jesus saves, well, then Jesus has to fundamentally, absolutely be God. You've got to affirm the full deity of Jesus. But you can go back two and a half centuries before that, back to John, the apostle who walked Jesus, talked to Jesus, beloved disciple who, who knew Jesus about as well as anybody could know Jesus. And here's what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And he goes on and says, the Word became flesh, and he is dwelling among us. He goes on and says, nobody's ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. In, in lots and lots of ways, in the prologue of John's Gospel, John says again and again and again, when you're dealing with Jesus... You need to understand you are dealing with capital G, God, uncreated, creator, fully God, God. It's not debatable. Now, I know that we've had some people in in at least one of our classes going through the book of John, and we're not going to do that this morning, so I don't want to rehash what somebody else has already gone through or steal anybody's thunder. So we're going to stay in Luke's gospel. We've been there for the last couple of weeks. We were there earlier this year. So we're going to go to a familiar passage in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 45. And we're just going to talk through the the deity of Jesus. And hopefully this is helpful to you. And if you want to tune out at any point along the way, please, please, please don't wait for the end because this is incredibly relevant in a way that people oftentimes do not initially understand or see. Okay. With that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child. And give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. 
Now, uh, this morning, as we do uh, a doctrinal deep dive into the divinity that dove down to us, we're going to answer three questions, okay? The first question is rather simple. Does this text actually teach the full deity of Jesus? The second question is, well, if it does, is that simply because Mary was this little 13, 14-year-old girl who was kind of self-deceived and didn't know how the world worked, that maybe she had delusions of grandeur, and that's why the early church came to believe this, because they took the testimony of a 14-year-old unwed pregnant girl. It's a question. Then there's another question that I want to answer, and this is really important. Why does this matter? Why is this such a big deal? Okay, so the Bible teaches it plainly. What significance does it have? Why is this so doctrinally significant? Why do we have to hold to this? Does it make make a difference that Jesus is capital G God? We're going to get to all that. First, let's start simply. What does the text teach? Does the text support the full deity of Jesus? And I want to say yes, absolutely. Four things I want to direct your attention to. First, the angel says he will be the son of the most high. The son of the most high, not a son. So Jesus is obviously being set apart from any others as the son of the most high. And you would say, okay, well, but, but, but couldn't that lend itself to, I don't know, like a Jehovah's Witness view where you got capital G God and then Jesus is little G God who's kind of an intermediary between uh, the rest of humanity and God. And I guess you could say that. But then look at the next verse, verse 33. It says that, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And then as if, the angel Gabriel is saying, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm going to say this in a different way so you can really understand. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. He is the forever king of the forever kingdom. Who does that sound like to you? The everlasting king of the everlasting kingdom who happens to be the son of the most high. Sounds like God. Then you go on a little bit further, and this is really interesting, and and translations don't always bear this out very plainly. But Mary asks, how's this going to be? You know, I'm I'm betrothed, I'm not married, I've got a husband, but we haven't been together yet and sealed the deal. And so how's this going to happen? And the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, you're going to be overshadowed by the Most High. And then he says, "So so the Holy One to be born will be the Son of God. Be called the Son of God, the Holy One. It's really interesting that in the Greek, it doesn't say the Holy One. Translators sort of smooth this out. In the Greek, it's just holy. So the Holy will be the Son of God. So the Holy One to be born. It's almost as if the angel is communicating holiness is going to take on flesh. There is this holiness that is waiting to be enfleshed in you. Now, of whom do you ever speak? Well, he, she is the holy. You ever say that about anybody other than God? The Jews didn't. So here is the son of the most high, who is the everlasting king of the everlasting kingdom, who is holiness incarnate. Then on top of that, I want you to notice something that oftentimes flies under the radar that we don't think about very often, but Elizabeth and Mary... They both are speaking of Jesus in terms of him being the Lord, my Lord, the Lord. Okay, let me ask you. In the first century, when Jews called someone the Lord, who were they talking about? Yahweh. 
They would, they would not address anyone as the Lord other than the Lord. If you look really carefully in the conversation between Elizabeth and Mary, they're both agreeing that the Lord who sent the baby is the baby. Now, this is astounding. Why do you think it is that in the early church, in the Middle Ages, you would have all of these artistic depictions and statuary depictions where you have Mary and Joseph who were kneeling before the baby? Because everybody in the early church understood that the Lord who sent the baby is the baby. So here we have the Son of the Most High, who is the everlasting King of the everlasting kingdom, who is holiness incarnate, and who is called the Lord. That seems pretty plain to me. This passage absolutely teaches the full deity of Jesus. And there are lots of other passages that we could go to. We're not doing that right here this morning. But let's let's press forward to the next question. The next question is, isn't it possible that the early church came to believe the full divinity of Jesus because, well, you know, Mary said so. And she's just, you know, she's a 14-year-old because that's about the age that would be when they were betrothed. She's a 13, maybe 14-year-old girl, and she's got delusions of grandeur, and she doesn't know how the world works, and she's just got an overblown sense of imagination. Isn't it possible that all these people came to believe in the deity of Jesus on the testimony of this unwed teenage pregnant girl? And I'm going to say no. And uh, let, let, me, let me back this up. Let's think about this. When Mary is told by the angel, the eternal is going to become temporal. The untouchable, the unapproachable is going to be huggable and kissable. What does Mary say? How can this be? Because I'm a virgin. She She's talking to the angel Gabriel. You have to think this must have been a very intimidating moment to be with the archangel who represents directly the throne of God. And she doesn't pretend, oh, yeah, sure, I get it. I mean, I don't really know how a woman's body works. What am I, a scientist? She doesn't say that. No, she could have been nominated for the Supreme Court of the United States of America. She, she, she understands how things work. And it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't resonate with her. Not only does she have intellectual problems, but of course there's going to be the difficulty of being the unwed teenage pregnant girl in that, that culture and that society. She is not liking at all what it is that she's hearing. What I want you to understand is she's absolutely incredulous to what she's being told, not only because she understood how the body worked, but also because there was no philosophy, no religion, no mood of the culture in any way, shape, or form that would have ever had anybody at that time expecting that God was going to come in the flesh. Let me go at it like this. At that time of, the, uh, of, of Israel's history, there were basically three cultures at work. There was the Greco-Roman world. There was the, you know, the, the philosophy or mysticism of the East because you have these crossroads. Israel was so important because it was the, the, the center of the, all these trade routes. And then, of course, you've got Judaism in Israel, right? None of the worldview at that time would have remotely been anticipating that God would ever come in the flesh. Nobody's looking for it. To the contrary. Let's go through these one at a time. The Greco-Roman world. The mood of the time, the philosophy of the time in the Greco-Roman world was if God were ever to become flesh, that's just ab- that's absurd, that's ridiculous, that runs contrary to every expectation that we have because the material world, in their view, was corrupt, dirty, maybe even just flat-out evil. So the very idea of the eternal becoming flesh, becoming material, absolutely unthinkable, absurd, nobody was looking for it. Ridiculous. Then you've got Eastern mysticism or philosophy of the Eastern cultures. And in that philosophy, the idea of God becoming flesh would have never been anticipated. It would have been equally absurd or contradictory to what they were thinking because the world is illusory. 
If divinity ever showed itself or revealed itself, it would simply be to say this world is an illusion. You need to escape it. God would never incarnate into an an illusory world so as to fix the world that doesn't actually exist. But then on top of that, you've got Judaism. And Judaism would have been the least likely of all the worldviews at the time to ever believe that God would come into the flesh. Why? Because in Judaism, you have the most transcendent God imaginable. He's called the most high. You don't get any higher than God. Completely transcendent. So transcendent that when it came to writing his name, you didn't write it out. So transcendent that people wouldn't even understand how to, how to pronounce his name. Or it was unpronounceable or you just wouldn't say it out loud. That's how transcendent God is. We sometimes look at spirituality in the first century like we do here in the 21st century where materialism and, and spirituality kind of commingle. You know, like the movie Avatar. It's out right now. I haven't seen the new one. But the old one, you've got, you know... Uh, Ewa, and she exists in all the material. And then you connect to Ewa physically, you know, at the Tree of Souls. Or you do, you think, some of you who are a little older school, you think about Star Wars and the Force is going through everything. And, and the way you connect to the Force is through these little physical beings called, you know, Metachlorians. And so, you know, of course, God could sometimes maybe have these little avatars or manifest himself in interesting ways because the physical and the material are kind of married to one another. That's pantheism or panentheism. It wasn't around in the first century. Nobody was looking for the incarnation. Everything about the incarnation from every level in every culture was completely absurd, ridiculous, contradictory. So if you're a 21st century skeptic and you say, oh, I know, I know why people came to believe in the doctrine of the incarnation. People were ignorant. They didn't know how things worked. And you had all these philosophies and everybody's just kind of, you know, for hundreds of years, for centuries, you had all these philosophies and worldviews that were just looking for the, for God to become flesh. And then, you know, here's Jesus and he's pretty unique and he just shows up on the scene and then everybody just believes in the doctrine of the incarnation because, well, everybody was looking for it. No. It's exactly the opposite of all that. There was no culture and no view within any culture ever that was anticipating what the Bible teaches in terms of the doctrine of the incarnation. In fact, everything was inclined in the opposite direction. So you have all this... You have so many inclinations against the doctrine of the the incarnation, not just intellectually, physically, medically, culturally, but just think in terms of how hard is this to just wrap your head around it. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. Who's going to make this up? I mean, really... It's very difficult to conceive. I don't mean to say that the doctrine of the incarnation is contradictory or illogical. It is not. That's a falsehood. Because what Christianity teaches is not that we believe there's one God and three gods. We don't teach there's one person and three persons. Those would be contradictions. What Christianity teaches is there's one God and three persons. It's different. There's one what? And three persons. There's one what and three who's. It's still a mystery, but it's not inherently contradictory. But let's just be honest about this. Even though you could say, well, maybe it's not illogical or flat-out contradictory to reason, it's pretty hard to swallow. I want to read this to you. This is from Augustine of Hippo. He was an early church scholar. He was one of the church fathers. He wrote this about the doctrine of the Incarnation. He's a believer, but he said, look, maker of the Son, he's made under the Son. In the Father he remains, from the Mother he goes forth. Creator of heaven and earth, he was born on earth under heaven. 
unspeakably wise. He is wisely speechless, filling the world. He lies in a manger, ruler of the stars. He nurses at his mother's bosom. He is both great in the nature of God and small in the form of a servant. Okay, so here's my question. If the doctrine of the incarnation did not in the first century line up with people, what people, with what people knew medically or physically, if it did not match up with any cultural or philosophical expectations, and if it didn't match up what we would consider to be generally reasonable, then how did so many people come to believe in the doctrine of the incarnation? If people back then were not any more inclined to believe it than people are now, if they were ever a bit as, as inclined to disbelieve in the doctrine of the incarnation as people are now, why did they come to believe that Jesus was fully God as he was fully man? Okay, the explanation is not that hard. Something got in their face. They saw something or someone. And their only explanation was, he's like us, but not. They saw Jesus' teaching. They saw his life. They saw his miracles. They saw him die. And then after he died, hundreds and hundreds of people said that they saw him alive, risen from the dead. That's the explanation. Not, oh, there were a bunch of Jewish men who took the word of an unwed pregnant teenage girl. Yeah, right. As a matter of fact, I think the reason that Luke's gospel, verses 26 through 45, were included and became understood as canonical or authoritative is because what Luke wrote matched up with the experience and understanding of the early church. Now, there's one more question I think that we need to answer, and and I hope this is helpful to you. Because it is really, you know, it does kind of bother me to to call anything heresy because it just, you know, I like to be a nice guy and be open-minded. But look, when it comes to this one, if if you undercut the divinity of Jesus Christ, it's like you're cutting off the branch upon which you are standing. You cannot... You cannot believe, I'm a Christian, oh, and I deny the deity of Jesus. It's not possible. And it's devastating to your life, spiritually speaking. Let me explain what I mean. Why, Why does this matter? Okay, it's clearly taught in the Bible. It's taught all over the place. Why does this matter? I want to mention seven things to you as to why it matters to me personally. I'm going to make this personal. Uh, number one, the doctrine of the incarnation helps me to... Uh, push down or, or put down my pride. And I need that. And I know the table back here is saying, amen. I know, it's true. I need that. When you accept the doctrine of the incarnation, when you accept what, what God says, he says, look, what's his name going to be? His name's going to be Jesus. What? God saves. As a Christian, I understand that nothing less than the very death of God would do for the salvation of my sin. I couldn't do anything. God had to do everything. If you believe that, it's God that took nothing less than God to come and give his life for me, then there's nothing that crushes your pride more than that. I have nothing that I can bring to the table. That crushes your pride. Number two, it will kill your control issues. That is to say, if I understand that this is God who gave everything, this is God who personally came, then the only reasonable response to this God is to yield to him completely as he has given up everything for me. The only reasonable or logical response to God is the response of Mary. Be it unto me according to thy word. Whatever you say, whatever you want to happen, is going to happen because you're God. 
And not just your God who dominates over me. You're the God who served me to the point of death, even death on a cross. Third reason this is so incredibly important is that it, let me put up the next one, go in my order, pacifies my pain. But what do I mean by this? If you believe in the doctrine of the incarnation, you, you believe in a God who suffers. Other religions don't have God, a God who suffers like this, because only a God who incarnates can be wounded. Only a God who becomes flesh can bleed. Only a God who becomes flesh can die. And what do I need in the midst of my pain? I need a God who empathizes, who understands. He can empathize with you in every way because God became flesh. He doesn't understand from a distance. He understands personally. Second thing that's really important about this is only a God who could die, only a God who can be wounded would ever need courage. Of all the different gods and all the different religions and worldviews, only God requires courage because he had to have it. If you can be wounded, if you can bleed, if you can die, you need courage. What do I need in the midst of my pain? Two things that other gods cannot supply. I need empathy and I need courage. No other god can do this. There's another reason why this is so important, and, and that is believing in the incarnation helps to crush our complacency. That is to say, when you see other people in need and you believe in the doctrine of the incarnation, you recognize God is concerned not just about the individual and the spiritual, but he's also concerned about the corporate and the material. Let me, let me elaborate. Do you think that God came into this world accidentally through Mary? Like it just happened that way. I think God planned it out. You know why? Because he's communicating several things. One, we know Mary is incredibly poor. We know this because in the next chapter, they go and they go make a sacrifice in the temple as they're dedicating Jesus in the temple, and they sacrifice two pigeons, which was what the poorest of the poor would do. Uh, the other thing we know about Mary is obviously she's a woman. We also know that uh, she is an unwed mother, which would have been an incredible shame in that culture. We also know, of course, she was Jewish, which, of course, that's on the wrong side of the tracks because the Jews were the oppressed people. They were the conquered people. So in every way, shape, or form, she wasn't of the right gender. She wasn't of the right socioeconomic status. She wasn't of the right race. She wasn't of the right social condition. Everything about Mary communicates radical powerlessness. Think God did that for an accident? I don't think so. I don't think so. When God incarnated, he, he placed value in the material. He's going to resurrect in the material. God cares about the material and the corporate as well as he cares about the individual and, and the spiritual. Number five, this is kind of along the same lines. Belief in the incarnation snubs my snobbery. That is to say, the extraordinary shows up in the ordinary. You've never run into an ordinary person who couldn't have the extraordinary presence of God. There is something sacred about every moment because in every moment, in every person, in every situation, in every relationship, God the Holy can invade that space. And we know this because God incarnates. God showed up in such a way so ordinary that I didn't have to put sunglasses on so as to see his holiness. There, there is something about reverence for every moment. And so you cannot possibly have a warmth toward the incarnation and at the same time have a condescending view of people around you. There's a sixth thing that oftentimes flies under the radar, but it doesn't fly under, fly under mind because I'm kind of mildly cynical and it's a terrible thing and I need to confess that. But the doctrine of the incarnation fights against cynicism. Most of us, we come into the world kind of idealistic. And I was probably rather idealistic into my early 20s because I just I lived a magically, wonderfully charmed life. 
It's not that I didn't notice difficulties and was a bad person, but along the way, eventually, you get disappointed, you get hurt, you get wounded, you get gossiped against, you don't get what it is that you thought was coming. And over time, people start out idealistically and they can become very, very cynical. What fights against the cynicism? Doctrine of the Incarnation. Why? Because we know in the doctrine of the Incarnation, the ideal became real. Up there came down here in person. Perfection actually came and went the distance all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. But when the ideal came, the real beat it up, bloodied it, and crucified it, which means it takes time for up there to come down here in all of its fullness. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and it will happen, but it will happen in time, but it's going to happen because it already happened once and Jesus is coming again. I need to be realistic in in my optimism or optimistic in my realism or at least patient in my idealism. The cross combined with the incarnation absolutely crucifies cynicism. And if you're cynical, you need to believe in the incarnation. Then number seven, and this is a big one for me too, it helps to bar boredom from my life. And, And here's what I mean. I like the fact that God is complicated. It resonates with reality for me. I, I, I like the thickness of the doctrine of the Trinity, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all fully divine. That makes sense to me, even though it's hard. And here's why. Matt Woodley kind of put it like this. He said, look, you look at the universe. It's supposed to reflect Jesus. Look how complicated it is. Think about your body. It's got trillions and trillions of cells, and they're all inter- interconnected in all these different ways. It's so complex. Family dynamics are complex. Football is much more complex than you think. Just looking at it on the surface, everything is kind of complicated. I just got a coffee maker for Christmas. You know, you open things at different stages when people are in town. My parents gave me a a ninja coffee maker. It came with a manual so thick it had to come in two volumes. I made coffee the other day and I only make straightforward coffee one cup at a time. I don't know that I needed it, but I got my ninja, set it up, punched the button to make some coffee, and it spilled all over the place because I didn't do some setting right. It was on the, you know, full gallon or whatever, and it should have been on the cup. And, you know, my coffee maker is complex. I will probably never understand the depths of the ninja machine. Do you want a God who is less complicated than your coffee pot? Really? For some reason, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to God, oh, just give it to me as simple as possible. Wait. Actually, what is presented in the Bible is as complex as it could possibly be. Do you think that rings true? I think it rings true to me. If God is the creator of all of this immaculate complexity, surely he's not less complex than an amoeba. I think for all eternity, I'm going to be getting to know God and I'm never going to get bored. You know why? Because he is more complex than everything in the entire universe put together that he created. The doctrine of the Trinity is a beautiful doctrine. The doctrine of the incarnation is not just beautiful and compelling and personally existentially necessary, clearly taught in the Bible. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, so many of the things that are so beneficial to us, completely 
disappear. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, Ernest, I'd like to, I'd like to believe in the Trinity and the doctrine of the incarnation like you do. I want to get more passionate about it. Okay, good. Here's a suggestion. Be a part of a Trinitarian community. Okay. Be a part of a church where people get excited about and believe in the doctrine of the incarnation. It's not that complicated. Uh, rather recently, it was just a few weeks ago, Hugh Brown, who's a teacher of one of our classes, was teaching through, has been teaching through John chapter 1. And there was one person in, in his class in our church that I don't really believe all that stuff. And uh, I, I want to read at least a portion of Hugh's response. I thought this was really good. He said this, and it made me feel good. He wrote, I am not in any way on the fence about the fact that the word Jesus Christ was with God. He was God, he is God, and he has a relationship with God. He is God and he is the image of God, perfectly reflecting all that God is and standing forth from all eternity as the fullness of deity and a distinct person. Now that was strong and it made me feel good, but it, did just, it didn't just make me feel good. It made my faith stronger. So well, how did it make your faith stronger? Do you learn something new? No, I already believe all this. But when you're in community and you hear this, it strengthens you. Let's go back to Mary and her encounter with the angel. We'll close on this. Mary's just been with Gabriel, who's the archangel, and the archangel has given this incredible word, uh, the Son of the Most High is going to come to you, be born through you. And Mary comes around. She doesn't necessarily like what she's hearing at first. She needs a little explanation. And she believes, but she's not excited. I mean, she's just been with the archangel of God, the direct link to the throne. She doesn't seem to be joyful. She's not singing. She seems to still be struggling. You know what the angel does? The angel says, go see Elizabeth. Go to your cousin. So Mary goes to her cousin. When she, and why, does the, why does the angel say this? Because at this point, Elizabeth would have been the only person in the whole world who would have heard Mary's story and not laughed at her. She's the only other person who would have understood what God was doing through the Son and understanding the implications. So Mary goes to Elizabeth, and what does Elizabeth do? She starts telling her story, and she's encouraging Mary, and she's comforting Mary, and she's even teaching Mary. And after they've been in gospel community, you know what happens next? That's when Mary sings. In the next few verses, 46 and following, there's the Magnificat, and Mary begins singing to the Lord. Why? Because she's been in community with another person who understands the story of the Son of God made flesh for you and for me. Look, I love the doctrine of the Trinity, and I also like the community of the Trinity, because here's what happens. When, when, you're in, when you're in fellowship with other people who believe the doctrine of the Incarnation, over time, you get to see the pride and the control issues and the pain and the snobbery and the complacency and the cynicism and the boredom. All those things begin to disappear and they get, begin to lift. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. It's the reality that this is God who has come to you. And this is why every Christmas season, as we think about the God who came, we, we weep and, uh, and our, our pride gets crushed. Because this wasn't just anybody who gave his life for you. This is God. Let's bow for a word of prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you for sending the Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping us to, to believe. And it is a lot to take in that a holy, 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 high and lifted up, most high creator God would come to the likes of us, but would not just come, but would suffer and then die and then, of course, be raised again. Lord, it is, it is that thought that undoes everything that needs to be undone and redoes everything that needs to be remade. Lord, help us to hold tightly to the doctrine, not simply because, well, that's what Christians do and it's all true. Help us to hold tightly to this belief because it changes lives like nothing else does. Or forgive us our complacency over these central doctrines. Help forgive us for the lack of clarity that sometimes we as teachers give. But Lord, I pray that if there are any here that have yet to understand and believe and receive that you, almighty, holy, holy, holy God, came for the likes of them, that you would help them to believe and help them to receive. So if there are any here this morning who have yet to acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord, who have yet to receive the greatest gift that a holy God could ever give, I pray that you grant them the ability to simply turn to you now and say, God, I know that I've sinned, I've fallen short, and I also know that there was a Savior who was born, and that Savior is the Lord. But I don't deserve that kind of mercy, but I know you've given it. And so, God, I want to receive it. I know that you came and you lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died so that I would have the life you deserve that I don't. Lord, I know that you, you love me with a love that I can barely understand, but I believe it. I believe in your love. I believe in your grace. I believe the Son came for me. So, God, I want to accept the gift of your Son this Christmas season, this very day. God, thank you for sending the Son. Thank you for receiving me. Thank you for the gift of grace. I receive it wholeheartedly without reservation. And I want to spend the rest of my days just growing in my understanding of what it is that you have personally done for me. In Jesus' name, amen.